Well, good morning. If you've had your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter. Mark chapter 15. This morning we're going to continue our study through this Gospel. And, and quite frankly, we find ourselves considering what are for me some of the most difficult verses in all the Bible to read. Uh, they are very difficult because of what they communicate. Yet they are also some of the most glorious words that we can ever contemplate. As one person has put it, when we get to this portion of the gospel, in a very real and in a very relevant sense, we ought to take our shoes off because the ground upon which we are treading is very, very holy ground. Over the past couple of weeks, if you've been with us, you'll know that we've, we've been building to this point. We, we've, we've seen Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've watched as all of his disciples left him and abandoned him. We've seen as Peter, the one who said, I will never deny you. I will always be there by your side, was the very one who on three separate occasions denied even knowing who Jesus was. We've seen the Jewish people and the religious leaders reject Jesus summarily and hand him over to the Roman governor of Palestine named Pilate. He was condemned to die and the Jews wanted to see him executed. Pilate examined Jesus, but he found no fault in him. Pilate was the one man who had the authority and the ability to set Jesus free, and yet he did not do so. He was also unable to persuade the Jewish people to release Jesus. They instead chose to release a man named Barabbas, who was a notorious criminal, a robber, a rebel, and a murderer. And what the Bible reveals to us is, is that Jesus' own people chose to reject the Christ and traded him for a criminal. As we've studied Mark chapter 15, it's become obvious to us that Jesus' fate is sealed. As Mark's readers, we, we know that Jesus is an innocent man. Nevertheless, we also know that he has been rejected and abandoned by everybody. In fact, as we will read, Jesus will go to the cross alone where he will assume upon himself the guilt of the sins of his people. And it will be there upon the cross that Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, will be forsaken by God himself who will pour out his wrath upon Jesus in full strength because of those sins. And it is that that makes this ground upon which we are treading this morning such holy ground. You see, there is an awful, terrible, horrifying aspect of the cross when we are confronted with it, especially with the pain and the suffering that Jesus endured. But there's also a beauty. A beauty in the cross that is so profound, it is so magnificent, it is so unparalleled that words we re-struggle to find words to describe it. As I mentioned to my Wednesday night Bible study crowd that gathers here every Wednesday night, 
I told them that if you truly understand the cross, it will either be the greatest and the sweetest thing in your life or you will despise it and you will hate it. If it is neither of those two things in your life, then friend, you have never truly understood the cross. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. John R.W. Stott wrote this regarding those of us who are being saved. He says, we are a community of the cross, for we have been brought into being by the cross, and the focus of our worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. So that is where we're going this morning. That is the, that is the ground upon which we are treading. So I want us to read it. I'm going to actually back up to verse 15. Verse 15 of Mark chapter 15 and read down through verse 32. Follow along with me there. In your Bibles, verse 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail! King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. Bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, that lets us know it was not true worship. When they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, who as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. Some of you won't have verse 28, but I want to read it anyway. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, as we come before you today, we come before you as people who 
want to see you for who you truly are and what you truly went through because it's in seeing you that we actually get a, an important picture of ourselves. When we see ourselves for who we truly are, we recognize that you're the only one that deserves to be worshipped. So I pray that as we examine this text this morning, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, examine us, that we may be changed by the power of your love. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You'll notice in your outline there on your bulletin, I've given you an outline. It's, it's a really simple one. I've, I've only actually provided you with three, three spots. It's three words. It's very simple. Um, three hooks, really, to hang our thoughts on this morning as we work our way through this text. I want you to notice the first word. It's just simply this. It's the word cruelty. The definition of cruelty is to be callous is to be indifferent to or, or to derive pleasure from inflicting pain and suffering. And though Mark uses only the barest and minimum of words to describe it, we get a very clear display of cruelty depicted for us in this passage. In fact, that's why I wanted to go back to verse 15 uh, from our passage from last week because there's a detail in that verse that I did not cover and did not focus on, but I want to draw your attention to it today. Mark tells us that in his desire to assuage and to gratify the Jewish people, Pilate had Jesus scourged. Mark doesn't give us any detail about what it meant to be scourged. But let there be no confusion to the fact that scourging was nothing short of cruelty. Scourging involved the use of a flagrum, which was a whip with long leather tails. And the leather straps could merely be knotted. Or if the lector, who was a trained expert in the art of torture, wanted to inflict even more damage, he could choose one that had small little bits of metal weights or even bits of sheep bone braided into those straps. The Romans were expert at the art of torture. They knew exactly how to beat a man to within an inch of his life. And the procedure usually sent the victim into shock in less than five minutes, but the beating took much longer than that. The Jews mercifully had a limit to the number of stripes that they would inflict, but the Romans had no such limit. To be perfectly honest with you, I am not someone who is able to stomach intense brutality. It has a very visceral effect upon me. Therefore, the thought of Jesus enduring such brutal, cruel, torturous punishment, the thought of seeing him tied to a stake, naked, beaten within an inch of his life, makes me physically ill. This is one of the reasons why this passage of Scripture is so difficult for me to contemplate. Remember also, Jesus had, had already been slapped. He had already been beaten the night before when he had been condemned for blasphemy by the Sanhedrin. And so here he is, already disfigured and swollen beyond recognition. And now he endures the savage cruelty of being scourged. 
But it doesn't end there. Notice with me that down in verse 17, that the Roman soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Verse 19 says that they struck Jesus on the head with a reed. Again, when Mark writes what he writes, he doesn't do so to sensationalize what took place. He doesn't try to over-dramatize the scenario. He simply presents the facts with simple language. But we should consider those facts closely. The crown that, that Mark describes would have been a, a crown made up of thorns that were at least two to three inches in length and, and needle sharp. Those thorns then would have been crushed down upon the head of Jesus piercing him all the way to his scalp and into his skull. They would have taken that reed, which was a staff, stick, a heavy one, and then they would have taken that reed and begin to beat Jesus about the head and the face and the back of his neck and shoulders. This was a man who was helpless. This was a man who had no ability to defend himself. His eyes were likely already swollen shut so that he couldn't see what was going on and happening around him. His back was already torn to pieces from the scourging that he had endured. And now this whole garrison of soldiers, Mark says, has their way with him like a cat playing with a mortally wounded mouse. But that's still not all. As was common for those who were crucified, the one who was going to be crucified had to carry his own patibulum. He had to carry his own cross beam. It was the part to which he would be nailed. He had to carry that out to the site where the crucifixion would take place. And the Romans, wanting to make a show of him, would have had him go every circuitous route that they could so that every, as many people as could could see what happens to those who defy Rome. The Bible says that Jesus was so beaten, he was physically unable to carry that crossbeam all the way out to the site. And so they conscripted into service. They, they forced a passerby named Simon of Cyrene to carry that beam for Jesus the rest of the way. That gives us an indication of just how beaten Jesus was. But the worst of what would be done to Jesus was still yet to come. Mark describes it simply a number of times. They led him out to crucify him. Verse 24, and when they had crucified him. Mark doesn't give us a lot of details to what crucifixion involved. In fact, none of the, none of the writers of the Gospels do. Matthew, Luke, John, none of them give us details with regard to the crucifixion. What took place when a person was crucified. And many have wondered, why didn't they, why didn't they write down what, it took, what took place? Why didn't they write the details of the cross? The reason why was because all of their readers in the first century world who read about someone being crucified didn't have to have the gory details given to them. They had seen thousands of men crucified. They knew the horror of what took place. They didn't have to have sensational details. Nevertheless, we should remind ourselves that crucifixion was the cruelest, most painful, most humiliating form of capital punishment in the ancient world. 
After being nailed to a cross, a man could languish on and suffer for several days. The Romans had perfected the technique of crucifixion so that it ensured maximum human suffering. Mark's description doesn't provide us with all those details. Rather, he just simply tells us that they led Jesus out to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And it was there that the soldiers would have pushed Jesus' back down onto the cross. One soldier would have laid across his chest while another one would have laid across his legs and two others would have nailed five-inch long spikes through his hands onto that patibulum beam. There was no sedation. There was no mercy. There was only pain. They would have followed that up with another five-inch spike through the heels of his feet to affix him to the cross. And then they would have stood him up and pushed that cross down into a pre-dug hole that would have jarred him when it hit the bottom. And there Jesus would have been left to die. Either by asphyxiation when he could no longer push himself up and get a breath of air and then fell back down and his lungs collapsed on top of him. Perhaps it was from the shock of the pain that he experienced or it could have been from dehydration. It mattered not to the Romans. All that they cared about was that the cross was not going to be fast and it was not going to be pain-free. It was meant to be cruel. It was intended to be the worst way to die. And here's where we recognize the fulfillment of something that Jesus knew was coming. In fact, David had written about it a thousand years earlier in Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm 22, David writes this, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all of my bones. And they look and they stare at me. This is the scene around the cross when Jesus is crucified. Kit Hughes has written this. He says, As Christians, we should not be overcome by a morbid preoccupation with the gore of the cross or by shallow sentimentalism. At the same time, Christ's agony must never become a matter of dispassionate interest. As I said, to imagine the awful brutality that Jesus went through is something that literally makes me sick to my stomach. And though it is not described here in this passage in great detail, it is nevertheless presented for us clearly. And that is the cruelty of the cross that Jesus endured. That's the first word of our text this morning. The second word that I want us to consider this morning is this, mockery. Mockery. Unlike the cruelty that Jesus endured about which Mark writes with only a few words, he provides us with much more detail concerning the mocking and the jeering and the, the ridicule that Jesus endured. After he was scourged, Mark tells us in, in verses 17 and 18 that the Roman soldiers clothed Jesus with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and began to salute him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. D.A. Carson writes this. He says that this is a scene of vicious mocking. The color purple was, was always associated with, with royalty. And so they likely found some old cloth. Maybe it was a red cloth that had faded through the years. Regardless, they took something that had the, 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 the look of purple and they draped it across Jesus and they began to ridicule him because he had claimed to be king. 
The crown of thorns that was placed upon Jesus' head was likely uh, an imitation of that circlet that you always see when you see a picture of Caesar. The, the, the coins would have had this circlet around his head. And so the crown of thorns was their way of mocking Jesus who claimed to be a king. And then sarcastically, the soldiers saluted Jesus saying, Hail, King of the Jews, which would have imitated the, the, the normal response to, to, to Caesar when he showed up. Ave, Caesar. Hail, Caesar. Well, here they hail Jesus as the King of the Jews. All of this was done to mock him. The parody continues with the soldiers coming and bowing before Jesus in some kind of display of, of paying homage to him. Verse 20 tells us they did all of it to mock him. And once they had done that, they took the purple off of him and they put his own clothes back on him and led him out to crucify him. Later, these same soldiers would, would cast lots to see if, who, which one of them would go home with Jesus' robe, which one of them would go home with the sandals that he wore on his feet. And that too is in fulfillment of the prophecy we read about in Psalm 22 where David wrote, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Notice also down in verse 26, Mark tells us that a placard had been made. And, and many believe that it was a, a, a board of, of, of substantial size that had been whited out or chalked out. And then on that board in either large black or large red letters would have been painted the words, the king of the Jews. And, and Pilate was the one who had had that sign made. And according to John's gospel, the Jews wanted that sign changed. They wanted it to read, Jesus claimed he was the king of the Jews, not that he just was the king of the Jews. They wanted to, to show that it was Jesus who said that, not, not them. Pilate refused to change it. And they nailed that placard on the top of the cross so that everybody who went by could see the reason why Jesus had been crucified. And then we read that after Jesus was nailed to the cross and hung between those two robbers, three groups of people added their insults to Jesus' injury. The first group in verses 29 and 30 was made up of passers-by who took their opportunity to blaspheme Jesus. Mark says that they were wagging their heads, which was an ancient way of, of showing disgust for someone. And they would say, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This detail that, that Mark provides for us tells us that the public opinion of Jesus had, had changed. Just days before, they had acclaimed him as, as the one who comes into the name of the Lord. And now here, a few days later, he is the one who they hurl their insults and contempt at. The second group, according to verses 31 and 32, was made up of the chief priests and the scribes. And they say this, they don't hurl their, their insults directly at Jesus. They say it among themselves. They say this, he saved himself. Himself he cannot save. It was as if they were congratulating themselves on the fact that their long anticipated goal of destroying Jesus had finally come true. And then the last group, the last of verse 32, we read about the third group. We don't know exactly what they said, but we know that the last group was made up of the two criminals who were crucified next to Jesus, who reviled him. Now, many of you will be noticing that one of those criminals actually repented before he died and asked to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom and Jesus saved him. Luke records that. But what Mark tells us is that prior to that repentance, he along with the other criminal 
reviled Jesus over his claims to be the Messiah. What Mark has told us then is that the soldiers, Pilate, the people, the chief priests and the scribes, and even those who suffered the same brutal fate as Jesus being crucified, all of them insulted him. All of them jeered at him. All of them mocked Jesus. And as Mark has made it clear, their mocking insults were added to the cruel injuries that Jesus had endured. So this morning, what we have witnessed so far is the, is the cruelty of the cross. We've examined the brutality and the suffering inflicted upon Jesus. We've also contemplated the, the mockery of the cross, the taunting and the jeering that Jesus endured. But, but we dare not stop there because if we do, if we leave with just those two perspectives, then we will miss the purpose of the cross. And therefore, I want you to notice with me the last word that I've given to you on your outline this morning. And it's the word majesty. This is an important word. In fact, you'll notice that I entitled the sermon, The Majesty of the Cross. You see, for us to truly understand Jesus' majesty, I think we've got to consider the things that, that happened to him, the things that were said to him, the things that were done to him in light of our atonement and what it necessitated. In fact, let's work our way backwards through the, what we've already examined. First of all, consider the mocking claim of the chief priests and the scribes who say he saved others, which means he, he healed others of their, of, their, of their sicknesses. He healed others of their diseases, but himself he cannot save. Think about that statement. The irony of those words is though they were meant to be ridiculed, though they were meant sarcastically, though they were meant to mock Jesus, those words were absolutely 100% true. You see, if as the Messiah, Jesus had come down from the cross to save himself, then those he came to save, sinners like you and me, we would have no hope. In fact, it is precisely by staying on the cross that Jesus accomplished our salvation because it was there that he did exactly what he said he came to do in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. By staying on the cross and refusing to save himself, Jesus brought salvation to his people. As one has written, the nails did not hold him fast to the cross. The love of God constrained him to stay there. But then let's back up to the mocking insults of the passersby who came by him and said, oh, you who, who are so going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days, why don't you, why don't you save yourself? From their perspective, to see this exhausted and this beaten, feeble figure hanging on the cross made such a claim laughable. But as David Garland has written, he says, their mockery, however, testifies to a truth beyond their range of vision. You see, Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, actually became the end of the sacrifices. The writer of Hebrews said he is the once and for all sacrifice and there is no more need for there to be sacrifices again. And so by his death on the cross, he effectively nullified the reason for the temple's existence. They were righter than they ever imagined themselves to be right. But then let's back up in the story even further. We saw how Jesus was repeatedly mocked as the king of the Jews. 
The religious leaders, Pilate, the soldiers, they all ridiculed Jesus' claim. And yet the irony of it is, is that he, they were truer in what they ridiculed him about than they ever imagined. He truly is a king. But he's not, as Donald Jewell has written, not one who foments rebellion against Rome and who restores Israel to its national splendor as a rival empire. No, he is one who endures mockery willingly and who obediently chooses the path that will lead to his death. That's the kind of king. Jesus came to be. And that is such an incredibly important point. Because when we consider the cruelty and the mockery of the cross, we must not pity Jesus as some weak person who was unable to fight back against the whims of the Jewish people and against the, the religious crowd and against the Roman government. Absolutely not. The scriptures tell us that he could have called 10,000 angels who would have come to his defense and brought him down from the cross and killed all of his enemies. That is the man who hung there on that cross. Brothers and sisters, what we have pictured for us in this account is Jesus who endured what he endured because that was his mission. That is why he came. That was his purpose. Nothing happened to Jesus that caught him by surprise. He knew what was coming and he bore the full weight of it so that we might be saved. And so when we see what we see in this passage is that through God's incredible power, he actually takes the, the venomous mockery that's being spit out against Jesus and he actually turns it into a proclamation of the gospel. He truly did stay on the cross. He didn't save himself so that we might be saved. He truly did turn over the whole sacrificial system because he was the final one to be sacrificed. Not only that, but he takes all the cruelty of the most brutal forms of death imaginable and he turns it into a display of God's love. Jerry Bridges has said this, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must first look at the cross where, Christ, where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. So in this text, Mark has actually presented us with two sides of the cross. He is on one side depicted for us the cruelty of the executioner's tool and the, the mockery of the ones who put Jesus on it. But on the other side, he opens our eyes to the majesty of God's plan of redemption. And as Bill Crowder has put it, Calvary was Christ's greatest anguish, yet it was also the event that produced his greatest glory. And that's why I believe that Paul, when he writes what he writes in Philippians 2, is so spot on. It's the part that I keep coming back to. Because Paul says that though he was in the form of God, Jesus didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore... God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue could, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Honestly, that is what leads me to the application of this passage here in Mark's gospel. You see, if Jesus is who the scriptures claim him to be, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if, if Jesus truly does have the name which is above every name, if he is the king of glory and the Lord of lords, 
And brothers and sisters, you and I have no other option before us except to fall down on our face before Him and to worship Him. His sacrifice before us compels us to adore Him and to love Him in light of what He has done for us. He died in one of the cruelest and most shameful ways possible. And such act proves His love for you and me and His resurrection proves that God was satisfied with the payment that He made. And therefore on the cross, the majesty of Jesus is in full view of those who will look to Him for salvation. This is the point. When you truly see the cross for what it is and when you truly understand what Jesus did there, then rather than mocking him, you will worship him. You will truly fall on your face before him and proclaim him as king of kings and lord of lords because true worship is the opposite of mockery. Not only that, but love and adoration are the opposite of cruelty. I mentioned to you before that cruelty is, the, is, is not only the, 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 the pleasure at causing pain, but it's the calloused response to those who are suffering. Why that's important is because to be presented with Jesus' sacrifice and to be shown how cruelly he was treated and how mercilessly he was mocked and taunted as he suffered and to be flippant and to be careless about that and to remain calloused and unmoved by that, brothers and sisters, that is nothing less than cruelty itself. The fact is, to see Jesus as the crucified king who died for his people necessitates that we worship and that we adore him. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. On the cross, Jesus showed the world that he is worthy to be worshiped and adored as the king of glory who took on the guilt of the sins of his people by dying in their place. As I close this morning, I just want to read just a few words from a man named J.C. Ryle who wrote back in the 1800s. Matter of fact, these words were published in 1860. And he basically asks a lot of great questions. And I just want to ask them and provide you the answers that he provides this morning as I conclude. Ryle asked this. He says, was Jesus scourged? It was through his stripes that we might be healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothing? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last and that the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. And then he finishes with this. He says, let us ponder these things well. They are worth remembering. Brothers and sisters, I would simply add to that amen and amen. This is the word of God. 
and it is given to the people of God. Let's pray together.